Some two million believers express their devotion to God by taking seriously their commitment to strict, literal obedience to all of the Ten Commandments. The Fourth Commandment is of special importance to them. They see it as a distinctive test of obedience. There are many more millions who claim also to be in submission to the commandments of God, but they disagree with their fellow students of the Bible about just what obedience to God's commandments means today. Many in the professing Christian world believe the Ten Commandments are as much the law for Christians as they were the law for Israel as given by Moses at Sinai. This point of view appears to have a plain scriptural support. Did not Jesus instruct the young man to, quote, keep the commandments? Matthew 19, 17. And did not Paul equally stress the need for obedience? Jesus made it clear beyond all doubt that, quote, he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5, verse 17. The natural conclusion from this statement would be that Old Testament law remains as the absolute standard of Christian behavior. All will agree that no law of God can be laid aside as irrelevant. None of God's revelation is meaningless. Paul understood this well when he stated that faith in Christ, far from destroying the law, confirms it. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Romans 3, verse 31. A major disagreement has arisen amongst believers as to how to apply one particular commandment of the law, the fourth of the so-called Ten Commandments, which has to do with the observance of the Sabbath. For one camp, there's really nothing to discuss. The Sabbath is binding on us as believers in Christ, exactly as it was binding on Israel in the Old Testament. Since it was a sign of Israel's allegiance to God, the Sabbath must surely be equally a sign identifying true Christian believers. How can any one of the so-called Ten Commandments be modified in any way. To disobey one would be to disobey them all. On this argument, the Sabbath becomes the one critical issue which decides whether we belong to Christ or the devil. Any theology proceeding from a non-Sabbath keeper will then be suspect because such a person is disobedient to God at a crucial test point. This writer is familiar with this sort of argument, having earlier observed Saturday as the Sabbath for many years. He has since observed, however, that Sabbath-keeping is no guarantee of soundness when it comes to other questions of biblical interpretation. The Origin of Sabbath Observance Does the observance of the Saturday Sabbath represent the ultimate in God's will for his people today? Much has been written on the important subject 
of the function of Old Testament law in the New Testament. Despite the nervousness of many Sabbath keepers, those who do not rest on the weekly Sabbath are not of the opinion that Christians can disobey God with impunity. The vital question is, what does obedience mean in the New Testament under the New Covenant? The primary difficulty for adherence to Saturday Sabbath keeping arises from a misunderstanding of the origin of obligatory Sabbath observance. Based on Genesis 2 verse 2 and 3 and Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 to 11, it is argued that the Sabbath day was instituted at creation as a weekly rest for all mankind from Adam onwards. This account of the origin of weekly Sabbath keeping overlooks the following biblical facts. Number one, Exodus 16, verse 23. We read there that the Sabbath day is revealed to Israel by God. The Lord says, quote, Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. There's no hint here that the seventh day rest had been in force since creation. God did not say, quote, Tomorrow is the well-known Sabbath given to all nations from creation. Indeed, Moses adds, Look, the Lord has given you, Israel, the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Exodus 16, verse 29. If God gave the Sabbath to Israel in Exodus 16, was he removing it from mankind in general? It is most strange that if Sabbath-keeping was revealed as divine law from creation for every nation, God would now specify Israel as the nation obliged to keep the Sabbath. Number two. In Nehemiah 9, verses 13 and 14, we read that the origin of weekly Sabbath observance is not at creation, but at Sinai. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments, so you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. Number three, Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 29 to 33. The weekly Sabbath is part of God's law given through Moses and thus part of the whole system of sabbatical observances revealed at Sinai. The people are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them 
on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forego the crops the seventh year. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. I notice in this quotation that Israel was bound to a whole system of Sabbaths and holy days. Number four, the purpose of the Sabbath, though it reflects God's rest at creation, Exodus 20 verse 11, is specifically to commemorate the exodus of the nation of Israel from Egypt. That is why the fourth commandment was given. I quote, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you that's to say, Israel, not mankind from creation, to observe the Sabbath day. Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. Point number five. The covenant made with Israel at Horeb was not made with the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Ten Commandments cannot therefore represent some universal law given to all mankind. The statement in Deuteronomy 5 verse 3 is specific. I quote, The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers. The Sabbath was given to Israel as a sign of God's special relationship with Israel, quote, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Ezekiel 20 verse 12. This would have no point if the Sabbath was required of all nations. It is a particular mark of God's dealings with one nation, Israel. Point number six. The Jews should be credited with some understanding of the origin of their national Sabbath. In Jubilees, chapter 2, 19 to 21 and verse 31, we learn that, quote, the creator of all things did not sanctify all peoples and nations to keep Sabbath thereon, but Israel alone. Confirmation of the biblical texts we have cited above comes also from rabbinical literature. In Genesis Rabbah, we learn that the seventh day of creation was God's Sabbath, but not humanity's. In the Mishnah and the Shabbatah, we find that, quote, if a Gentile comes to put out the fire, they must not say to him, do not put it out, since they, Israel, are not answerable for his keeping the Sabbath. 
The reason for this is, quote, the Sabbath is a perpetual covenant between me and the children of Israel, but not between me and the nations of the world. That's found in the Jewish writing Melkita Shabbata. From these passages, it's clear that the whole system of laws, including the weekly Sabbath, the Holy Sabbath of the seventh week, Pentecost, the Holy Day Sabbath of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets, the New Moons and other Holy Days, the seventh year land Sabbath, and the Jubilee after 49 years, all these were part of a sabbatical system given to Israel through Moses. The weekly rest was a commemoration of Israel's exodus. Deuteronomy 5 verse 15. Thus Ezekiel states that God, quote, took Israel out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which, if a man, that's to say an Israelite, observes them, he will live. Also I gave them my Sabbaths, plural, to be a sign between me and them, Israel, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Sanctify my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. That's a quotation from Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 10 to 12 and verse 20. From this data, it could not possibly be deduced that the sabbatical system was enjoined on mankind from creation onwards. All these passages of Scripture confirmed by other Jewish writings, point to the Sabbaths as a special sign of God's relationship with one chosen nation. Since Deuteronomy 5 verse 15 traces the origin of the Sabbath to the Exodus, why does Exodus 20 verse 11 connect it with creation? The answer is that God did indeed rest on the seventh day at creation. However, the text in Genesis 2 verse 3 does not say that he then commanded Adam and mankind to rest every subsequent seventh day. If he had said this, the Sabbath could not be a memorial of Israel's exodus, as in Deuteronomy 5 verse 15. The fact is that many misread the text in Genesis 2 verse 3 to mean that God rested on the seventh day and blessed every following seventh day from then on, commanding mankind to rest on that day. Actually, it was only God who rested at creation and only on the one seventh day which ended his creation. It was not until thousands of years later that he used his own seventh day rest at creation as a model to introduce the very seventh-day Sabbath given to Israel. God alone rested on the first seventh day and much later revealed the seventh day to Israel 
as a permanent Sabbath observance, as in Exodus chapter 16. The weekly Sabbath appears in the Ten Commandments, which summarize the law given through Moses to Israel. But it is not to be separated from the whole system of sabbatical rest given to Israel, weekly, monthly, yearly, and seven-yearly, and at the Jubilee. Klaus Westermann, in his commentary on Genesis 1-11, to sums up his findings about the origin of the Sabbath. I quote, Indeed, one cannot find in Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, an institution and not even a preparation for the Sabbath, but rather the later foundation of the Sabbath is reflected in these sentences. The Ten Commandments. It is interesting to note the Jewish translation of Deuteronomy 5, verse 22. The direct announcement of the commandments from Sinai, quote, went on no more. Wasn't, as other versions imply, that God added no more words, thus making the Ten Commandments a unique set of laws distinct from the rest of the law, but that the people, as the story goes on to say in Deuteronomy 5, verses 22 to 28, could not bear to hear God's voice. In response, God continued with the announcement of the law through Moses. In this case, the Ten Commandments are separated from the rest of the law because God was interrupted by the extreme fear of the people. In the New Testament, laws are quoted without distinction from in and out of the Ten Commandments. See, for example, Matthew 19, verses 18 and 19, five from the Ten Commandments and one not. Mark 10, verse 19, five from the Ten Commandments and one not. Certainly, they quote, ten words were unique in the sense that they were spoken from the mountain directly to Israel. It is also true that laws against killing and adultery have permanent validity for all men. But it is nowhere said that all ten, which includes the Sabbath law representing the whole sabbatical system, it is nowhere said that these are binding on all men at all times. The Ten Commandments are part of a whole legal system given to Israel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul deliberately contrasts the provisional nature of the Ten Commandments as a system of law with the new spirit of the law which characterizes the Christian faith. The old system, quote, came with glory, verse 7. But that glory is outdone by the new administration of the Spirit. The law given at Sinai was written on tablets of stone, a reference to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 34, verse 28 and 29, but the epistle written by the Spirit of Christ in the heart, verse 3, is far superior.
the law was a, quote, custodian or tutor to lead us to Christ. Galatians 3, verse 24. It was enacted 430 years after the covenant made with Abraham. Galatians 3.17 It was added temporarily until the seed would come. Galatians 3.19 Paul did not say that the law given through Moses was, quote, God's eternal law. I quote, What matters, says Paul, is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but the keeping of God's commandments. But his reference is not to the Ten Commandments. He did not say the commandments of God as given through Moses, but, quote, commandments of God, i.e. divine commands, and these are now summed up as the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. If we compare other passages where Paul disparages the need for circumcision, we see the contrast he seeks to establish. I quote, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But I add, in the Old Testament, it meant everything. See Genesis 17, 9 to 14. But what really counts, Paul says here, is faith working through love. Galatians 5, verse 6. I quote again from Paul, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation is all important. Galatians 6, verse 15. For some Sabbath keepers, it seems that Paul should have said, Circumcision is nothing, but Sabbath and holy day observance on the correct day is everything. We need to emphasize the point that in Genesis 17, one could not be a full member of the community of the people of God unless one was circumcised physically. This applied equally to foreigners living with the descendants of Abraham. The radical difference between mandatory circumcision for everyone and Paul's indifference to circumcision alerts us to the very great difference of practice between the two Testaments and helps us to anticipate a spiritualizing of the law in other respects, not least in the matter of the observance of the days given to Israel. In Acts 15, a council was held to address the pressing problem raised by some Jewish Christians who are, quote, teaching the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Some believers who belonged to the Pharisees rose up and said, quote, it is necessary to circumcise them and to charge them to keep the law of Moses. We read that in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 5. Peter's response indicates the enormous change of policy directed by God and the Messiah for the international body of Christians. I quote, 
Now therefore, why do you make a trial of God? By putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we shall be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's verses 10 and 11 of Acts 15. It would be a direct contradiction of Scripture to say that the Torah in its mosaic form was an unmixed blessing for Israel. There was much which was intended as a severe discipline and its purpose was to build a barrier between Israel and the nations. Under the New Covenant, as Peter explained it, God has now given the Holy Spirit to Gentiles as well as to Jews. And I quote, And God made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. That's in verse 9. It was the intelligent reception of the gospel of the kingdom of God which purified the hearts of everyone who believed the gospel as Jesus preached it. We find that in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Mark 4, verses 11 and 12, Matthew 13, 19, Luke 8, verses 11 and 12, John 15, verse 3, Acts 26, verse 18, Romans 10, verse 17, 1 John 5, verse 20, and Isaiah 53, verse 11. Jesus and the law. It's a fundamental mistake to suppose that Jesus merely reinforced the need to observe all the laws given to Israel through Moses. It is, however, true that he specifically denied that he was going to destroy the law or the prophets. Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18. How then can Jesus have altered the law while not destroying it? The answer is found in his significant statement that, quote, he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. What is meant by, quote, fulfilling the law? Does fulfilling the law simply mean performing it as Moses required? If Jesus demands that we carry out the precept of the law as given by Moses, then clearly circumcision in the flesh is still mandatory for all. We should remember that circumcision in the flesh was a sign of the covenant made with Abraham after he had believed the gospel. Galatians 3 verse 8, see also Romans 4 verses 9 to 12. And circumcision is a mark of the true, obedient Israelite, just as the Sabbath also identified a faithful Israelite. The Lord said quite clearly, quote, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, as in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Note also the commandment which ensured that, quote, 
no uncircumcised person may eat the Passover. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. That's from Exodus 12, verses 48 and 49. In Exodus 4, 24 to 26, God had threatened death to Moses if he did not see that his children were physically circumcised. This was one of God's most fundamental commandments to Israel. But was it his eternal law in that form for every human being? None of us feels the obligation to carry out this part of God's law, though we can find nothing in the recorded teaching of Jesus while he was on earth, which would do away with the requirement of physical circumcision. We do not pay the slightest attention to the eighth day of an infant's life as the day on which he should be circumcised according to God's law. Have we then destroyed the law? In a sense, yes, but in a different sense, no. We understand from the teaching of Paul, though not from the teaching of Jesus when he was on earth, that circumcision is now, quote, in the heart. For, quote, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit and not by the letter. That's in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. There's surely a vast difference between circumcision in the flesh and circumcision in the Spirit. Yet the New Testament sees spiritual, inward circumcision as the proper response to the command that we are to be circumcised. The law has been spiritualized and thus, quote, fulfilled. It has not been destroyed. It has certainly taken a quite different form under the Christian dispensation. Jesus embarked on just such a spiritualization of the Ten Commandments and other laws, treating them all the same. When, in the Sermon on the Mount, he announced, quote, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, again, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, again, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9, by, quote, fulfilling the law, Jesus is altering it actually changing it, but not destroying it. He's in fact bringing out the real intention of the law, making it more radical, in some cases, as with divorce, repealing the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 24, stating that this provision was temporary. This is an important fact. Jesus' teaching actually renders Moses' divorce law null and void. He takes us back to an earlier marriage law given by God in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. 
Jesus thus appeals to an earlier and more fundamental part of the Torah. He overrides the later concession given by Moses as Torah. Jesus brought the law to its destined end, the ultimate purpose for which it was originally enacted. Romans 10 verse 4. In every case, we must see what this entails. For example, what of the law of clean and unclean meats? Does Jesus say anything about the meaning of that law for Christians? In character with others of his sayings, Jesus goes to the heart of the problem of uncleanness. I quote, Whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. That's in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Then Mark comments, Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Mark 7, verse 19. It appears that at the time Jesus spoke of defilement, his audience did not understand the radical way in which he was altering the practical effects of the law. Peter continued to observe the food laws and protested that he had never eaten anything, quote, common, kinos in Greek, or unclean. The Greek is akathartos, Acts 10, 14. But later, when Mark wrote his gospel, the lesson was learned. The law of clean and unclean food was no longer in force. Mark had elsewhere, in Mark 3, verse 30, added his own editorial comment, and he does so in Mark 7, verse 19. Jesus had been referring to this change under the new covenant. The law's original purpose had been to teach people to be discriminating in matters of good and evil. Paul and the law. Paul, the observant Jew, taught this same, quote, fulfillment of the law of clean and unclean when he wrote, quote, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus, as to say as a Christian believer, that nothing is unclean. The Greek word there is kinos, common. Nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. That's a quotation from Romans 14, verse 14. I quote again, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. Greek word is katharos there. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Romans 14, verse 20. The man who writes this way is certainly not concerned with the distinction between clean and unclean meats and fish given in the law, except as those issues might affect an oversensitive, weak conscience as in Romans 14, verse 15. Particularly significant, and contrary to what Herbert Armstrong of the Worldwide Church of God taught, 
is the fact that Paul uses both kinos, Romans 14, 14, meaning common or unclean by use, and katharos, Romans 14, verse 20, which means clean by nature. Armstrong had alleged that Paul did not mean to include things which were unclean by nature, akathartos, the opposite of katharos. However, by saying that all things are katharos, Paul, of course, implies that nothing is akathartos. Matters of diet cannot therefore be decided merely from the law of clean and unclean given to Israel. Standard commentaries confirm our point about Romans 14. I quote, Paul's norm or standard is that no food is unclean of itself, a statement that stands in flat contradiction to the Torah. This fact alone establishes our conclusions, namely that in the new age of the Spirit, God's demands on us are not mediated to us through the stipulations of the law. That's a quote from John Ziesler's book, Paul's Letter to the Romans, written in 1989. This remarkable statement in Romans 14.14 14, undercuts the whole distinction between clean and unclean foods on which Paul, like other observant Jews, had been brought up. Modern readers inevitably think of Mark 7, verses 14 to 23, and Luke 11, verse 41. Standard commentaries confirm our point about Romans 14. I quote, Paul's norm or standard is that no food is unclean of itself, a statement that stands in flat contradiction to the Torah. This fact alone establishes our conclusion, namely that in the new age of the Spirit, God's demands on us are not mediated to us through the stipulations of the law. End of quotation from D.R. de Lacy, the chapter entitled The Sabbath, Sunday Question and the Law in the Pauline Corpus. That's from D.A. Carson's book, from Sabbath to Lord's Day, written in 1982. This remarkable statement in Romans 14, 14 undercuts the whole distinction between clean and unclean foods on which Paul, like other observant Jews, had been brought up. Modern readers inevitably think of Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23, and Luke 11, verse 41. End of quotation from John Ziesler in his commentary, Paul's Letter to the Romans, written in 1989. David Stern, in his Jewish New Testament commentary, is remarkably frank. Of Romans 14, verse 14, he says, that Paul's words are, quote, nevertheless a surprising conclusion for a Jewish scholar who sat at the feet of Rabban Gamaliel. These are a surprising conclusion 
for such a rabbi as Paul to reach. Indeed, he had to be persuaded by the Lord Jesus, the Messiah himself. For the concept of ritual uncleanness pervades not only the Mishnah, one of whose six major divisions, Taharot, ritual uncleanness, has this issue of foods as its central topic. But the Pentateuch itself, especially Leviticus 11 to 17, had given a full account of clean and unclean foods. The Bible does not always explain why some things are pure and others are not. Hygiene is not the issue, for if it were, there would be no reason to exclude Gentiles from the application of these laws. And the rabbis do not speculate much on the reasons. That's a quotation from Stern's, David Stern's Jewish New Testament publication. Stern adds that since in Judaism the laws of ritual purity apply to Jews only, Paul's statement, quote, that nothing is unclean in itself should suffice to free any Gentile whose conscience still bothers him in regard to such matters. Stern has not noted, though, that Paul is writing as a Christian Jew, and it is Paul who makes it clear that the laws of clean and unclean food are no longer valid for him as a Jewish believer in the Messiah. Paul does not confine this freedom to Gentile believers only, but reckons himself as a formerly observant Jew no longer bound by the food laws. This is a strikingly interesting lesson about the nature of the new covenant. The question of Sabbaths, new moons, and holy days. We have seen that Jesus' intention to fulfill the law certainly did not mean that he was simply reinforcing the laws of Moses. The Sermon on the Mount, in that case, would have been entirely unnecessary. So-called fulfillment entailed for Jesus some radical changes in what it means to be obedient. Jesus is not just a copy of Moses, but he is the prophet raised up from Israel, like Moses, according to Deuteronomy 15, verses 15 to 19, Acts 3, verse 22, and Acts 7, verse 27. It is the words of Jesus and of his emissaries, the apostles and writers of Scripture, which now form the new gold standard for new covenant faith. The prophet Jesus, quote, like Moses, was to receive God's final revelation. The promise would be pointless if he was merely to repeat the words of Moses. It is obvious that Jesus, as a circumcised Jew, kept the holy days prescribed by the law. He himself was commissioned to go to the lost tribes of Israel, and he acted as a Jew to the Jews. 
Jesus advised some to tithe on each herb. Matthew 23, 23, a practice which few would follow literally today. However, Jesus himself also promised that further guidance into truth would be given to the church after his death. We read that in John 16, verses 12 and 13. The teaching of Jesus did not end at the cross. He continued to instruct the church through the Spirit in his absence. Jesus speaks to us in Paul and the rest of the New Testament. The issue for us today as Gentile believers is to discover what obligation we now have to the special days given to Israel. We've seen already that circumcision in its original form has been abolished, that the law of clean and unclean is irrelevant in its literal sense. What about the Sabbath and holy days? Colossians 2 verses 16 and 17. We should treat as of major importance Paul's only reference to the words Sabbath and holy days in the whole of his preserved writings. This occurs in Colossians 2 verse 16. In this verse, Paul describes the holy days, annual observance, new moons, monthly observance, and Sabbath, weekly observance, as a, quote, shadow. In so doing, he reveals the apostolic mind on this crucial issue. It would seem quite amazing that if Paul felt that Sabbath-keeping was an absolute requirement for salvation, that he could describe the weekly Sabbath and holy days as a shadow. This would lead to dangerous misunderstanding. Nevertheless, the fact is clear beyond all doubt. Paul does indeed call the Sabbath, the holy days, and the new moons a shadow. A shadow ceases to be significant when the reality Christ appears. Paul uses exactly the same language of shadow and reality that we find in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 where the quote shadow sacrifices of the Old Testament are now rendered obsolete by the quote body sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 10. Again, I quote, the law having a shadow of the good things to come. Hebrews 10 verse 1. Here the law of sacrifices was provisional and rendered unnecessary by the appearance of Christ. But Paul says exactly the same of the observance of special days in Colossians 2 verses 16 and 17. The law prescribing the observance of holy days, new moons, and Sabbath days foreshadowed the reality of Christ and his kingdom, the good things coming. The point about the Sabbath being a shadow is so important in view of the immense value attached to the Sabbath by some that we should look again at Colossians 2 verses 16 and 17. 
I quote, Because Christ has cancelled the certificate of decrees which was against us, in verse 14, therefore let no one act as your judge or take you to task in regard to food and drink or in regard to a festival, new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which are a shadow of what is to come, but the substance anticipated by the shadow belongs to Christ. There it is in black and white. This is the final New Testament information given about Sabbath keeping. The significance of the Sabbath day for Christians as well as of the holy days and new moons is comparable to a shadow. These days no longer have any substance and will not therefore benefit those who try to observe them. Do Sabbath keepers in fact keep the Sabbath properly in Old Testament terms? Do they, for example, obey the Sabbath command by observing the rules for limited travel on Saturday? As we see in Acts 1 verse 12, what counts now is Christ and his commands. He and his new law are the fulfillment of that shadow. In him we should strive for a permanent, quote, Sabbath every day of the week. No wonder, then, that Matthew includes Jesus' famous saying about coming to him to find rest in the same context as the dispute over plucking ears of corn on the Sabbath. Matthew 11, verses 28 to Matthew 12, verse 8. Matthew also notes that the priests working in the temple were not bound by the Sabbath law. Matthew 12, verse 5. It was not a sin for those priests to break the Sabbath. As Jesus pointed out, he and his followers represent the new spiritual temple. Matthew 12, verses 4 and 5. And he himself is the new high priest. There is more than a hint here that Sabbath-keeping is part of the old order. We may well say that the law, by exempting the priests from the Sabbath commandment when they worked in the temple, foreshadowed the Christians' freedom from the Sabbath law while they now carry out God's work every day of the week. Just as the Sabbath of the Old Testament was a shadow of Christ, Colossians 2.17, so were the sacrifices, Hebrews 10, verse 1. And the priest's exemption from Sabbath observance pointed to a time when those who obey God would do so by complying with principles different from those given to Israel. Attempts by Sabbath keepers to retranslate Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17 are unconvincing. Some maintain that the weekly Sabbath is excluded from Paul's so-called trio of observances. Others hold that all three types of observance are meant. They then argue that Paul does not call the days themselves a shadow, but things wrongly added to the days. One Sabbath exponent, 
thinks that the Colossians were being urged to offer sacrifices on the special days. But could a Gentile in Colossae offer a sacrifice according to the law? This could only be done in the temple in Jerusalem. A plain reading of Colossians 2, verses 16-17 reveals that Paul lumps together three types of special observances and pronounces them a shadow. This hardly makes Sabbath-keeping the issue for salvation as some present it. It may be that deep down many Sabbatarians feel as one Seventh-day Adventist who renounced Sabbath-keeping after 28 years said, I quote, I have often wished that Colossians 2:16 and 17 was not in the Bible, and it troubles my Seventh-day Adventist friends as much as it did me, say whatever they will. That's cited by M.S. Logan in the article, on the Sabbath day, a reply to those who insist that Sabbath or Saturday is the only true Sabbath, written in 1913. Those who wonder about this passage in Colossians 2, 16 and 17 should reflect on the plain words of Dean Alford in his celebrated commentary on the Greek Testament. I quote, we may observe that if the ordinance of the Sabbath had been in any form of lasting obligation on the Christian church, it would have been quite impossible for the apostle to have spoken thus, as in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. The fact of an obligatory rest on one day, whether the seventh or the first, would have been directly in the teeth of his assertion here. The holding of such would have been still to retain the shadow while we possess the substance. And no answer can be given to this by the transparent special pleading that he was speaking only of that which was Jewish in such observances. The whole argument being general and the axiom of verse 17 universally applicable. 